Wow. Wow. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we think we've just seen a glimpse of heaven. And uh, Lord, we, we, um, we're kind of like Peter this morning. We just want to build tabernacles and stay right here, God, in your presence with your people. Lord, for the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love that from our birth over and around us lies. Lord of all, to you we raise this, our prayer of grateful praise. Thank you for loving the whole world. Thank you for loving all the peoples of the earth. Thank you for loving by sending your only son. And today, Father, I pray that you give us a a better picture of who Jesus is so that we might better understand how to live and to love as neighbors in your world. That's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Our theme for this year, Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. So we celebrate his goodness today and I just uh, marvel, I mean, this is just, a beautiful service and we used to do this on Sunday nights and, um, and so many of us missed it just because of schedules and everything and I, I just made myself a promise that we would find a way to do this on a Sunday morning. So in each of our services, they aren't the same testimonies, they aren't the same songs. We've had different people singing and testifying in every service, different people praying and reading scripture in different languages and all to the glory of our one great God, our Redeemer and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all and lives in us his people and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to worship in the presence of the God who made you and redeemed you with his blood. We celebrate God's goodness today. And I tell you, sometimes it's like a dream because I wish when I read the news and I read on the internet and I hear the stories about the pain and the suffering and the struggles in our world and I just wish, don't you ever wish the world could be a safe place and a better place and a more loving place. I think Coca-Cola was getting at that with that commercial. Remember last week, you probably were watching the Super Bowl and you saw the Coca-Cola commercial. If you didn't see it, I wanna show it to you because I think it expresses something of a wish. seeing that on Sunday and showing it to my family and just thinking, yes, Lord, I would love for us to make the world a different place. I wish there were just some substance, some chemical we could pour through the the computer lines that would change 
the world that we live in. Then Monday I heard, maybe you heard too, that, that uh, some very hateful people co-opted that. They had put it online and they began to use that to spread and disseminate hatred and pain. And Coca-Cola literally had to pull it offline because the people at Gawker had distorted it in some way to make it something not about love, but about hate, not about happiness, but about sorrow. And all of that was just so amazing to me because I think it shows, first of all, that at one level, we really want the world to be a better place. We know it's broken and we wish it could be fixed. And at the other hand, I would say, as soon as we human beings get involved in it, we often make a mess of it and we make it worse. We sort of make it worse even, even as some are trying to make the world a better place. John Donne captured it in his poem, this British poet preacher who said, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. We're, we're part of this broken world. And into this world, God's son came and he spoke a story one day to a man who was asking the question, who is my neighbor? And I love Jesus' answer to him because Jesus doesn't actually answer the question. He doesn't tell him who his neighbor is. He tells him how to be a neighbor. And I want to show you that in God's word. Would you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10? And I'm going to read verses 29 to 37. Let's stand in reverence for our God. And his word, when we, when we finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. If you'll say thanks be to God, you'll make my day. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 29, this man uh, says to Jesus, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And replied, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. This was not a surprising story in the first century. This was a shocking story. Because I'm pretty sure Jesus' hearers, just like we come over a period of time to expect a punchline, we... Um, we might have in that day heard Jesus say, here's a man who's been robbed because that happened on the road, by the way, from Jerusalem to Jericho. There was a, a narrow spot called the Pass of Blood. And for centuries, uh, robbers hung out in that place and took advantage of people. So they knew this part of the story. And when Jesus said the priest came by and he did nothing and the Levite came by and he did nothing, they, they must have thought, okay, Jesus is gonna say, and just a good Jewish layperson." was walking by and he saw the man and he helped him. But instead, when Jesus enunciated the word Samaritan, there would have been a gasp 
somewhere in the crowd. There would have been a holy hush. Somebody would have been offended by that because they could think of no other person that they had so objectified and hated. If you were a Jew, you hated the Samaritan. If you were a Samaritan, you hated the Jew. And you can fill in the blank with somebody because I think all of us have remnants of prejudice and hatred in our lives. And they, they put that word there. And Jesus says, Samaritan. And the man looks at him and Jesus says, which one? And the man can't even say Samaritan. Do you see that? He says, the one who had mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. The one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And the man had asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, how do you read the law? And he said, love God with your all and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, great, do that. And in a way, what Jesus is doing as the man tries to set a trap for him is Jesus is, notice how nimbly he's stepping out of the noose and at the same time setting a trap of love for the man to say, I want you to be captured by the love that is greater than any love in the world. And Jesus invites this man to a transformation of life. He is inviting him to what I would call gospel neighboring. Having been transformed by the truth of God's love, we so trust that love that we let it begin to change us and we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we begin to love people that we never even liked before. This is the tremendous power of God's grace to transform the hearts and lives of people. When George Whitfield came, Thomas Kidd has written a, a new book about George Whitfield. And when Whitfield came to the United States preaching, um, there was a man up in Connecticut, Middlebury, Connecticut, named Nathan Cole. And Nathan Cole heard him preach. And this is what he described happened while the preaching was taking place. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Jesus is doing that for this religious lawyer. He's not like a lawyer in the sense of going to the court. He's a religious lawyer. He knows the law and the law is the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And this man is an expert. So it's easy for him to quote Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, 18, love God, love your neighbor. But when Jesus says to him now to put that into practice, the very realization of that causes him to see his own righteousness cannot save him. The only way he can be saved is if some Samaritan, say, came along the road where he was beaten and broken by life and rescued him. And what I love about this church is that we are a gospel-centered church, that the good news of Jesus Christ is our message, and that gospel has changed us. And here is hope for our city. Here's hope for our community. Here is hope for our world, that that gospel so deeply takes root in our souls that we begin to love the way that Christ loved. But it will not happen apart from a heart transformation. And when it does happen, what happens is not a paternalistic, oh, what can our church do to help internationals? But suddenly every Sunday becomes International Sunday because we are all, I read it in Psalm 39 on the 39th day of the year this morning, Lord, I come into your presence like a foreigner, like a stranger. And it's only that we are God's trophies of grace, which invites us into relationship with him, which enables us to live in right relationship with each other. Otherwise, we're stuck 
in this paradigm of the story, the three attitudes. Do you see the attitudes there? The first, the attitude of the robbers who said, what's yours is mine and I'll take it from you if I want it. Have you ever run into that attitude in the world? It can be something simple like a parking place uh, in, uh, or a, a place on the freeway and somebody jumps in line ahead of you or takes advantage. It, it can be... Um, um, a more painful kind of thing. A few times in my time in Houston, I've had laptops stolen. I think I may have had more laptops stolen than anybody else in Houston in the last 17 years. Four by my count I've had stolen in this period of time. And, you know, it's always a feeling like, ah, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody take something that belongs to me? In our congregation, we have members who once lived in a country where they owned farms but their neighbors in hatred came and stole their farms and ran them out of the country and they lived in refugee camps for over 10 years because somebody stole their farms. One of our members' grandmother died in uh, Kathmandu, Nepal and, and uh, we had prayed that she would pass away because she was suffering so greatly and she was a Christian and she went to be with the Lord and he said, pray that my grandmother will die. When his family, the only Christians in that part of the city, in that village, tried to bury their grandmother as a Christian, the whole town descended on his father and his brother and beat them physically so that they could not dig the grave because that was not part of their custom and literally ran them out of town. This happens in our world. And this week, a video of a, of a Jordanian pilot got the undivided attention of our world. And this is what I would say to you about a world that is filled with hate. If you and I respond to hate with hatred, if we say, well, if they're trying to take what's mine, I'll try to take what's theirs. If we do that, we become what we hate. And I refuse to allow hatred to make me a hateful person. I know there's hatred in the world and we live in a violent world and that violence is real. I was uh, listening this week to um, some who were telling me about Tallywood basketball, which has reached so many people through the years. And I keep running into adults who say, I used to play basketball at your church. All over Houston, I run into people like that. And, uh, and uh, we had a group of girls, I think they were wearing Batman costumes last week for the football game. And, and they're eighth graders and they're really good athletes. Those of you who've played against them know they're very good athletes. And uh, they were playing against the sixth grade girls team in Tallywood basketball. And there's always a prayer before. And one of the sixth graders volunteered to pray. And this is what she prayed. I heard she prayed. Lord, help us all to remember that this is a nonviolent sport. <laughs> we, we don't want any violence in here. We don't want any of that. And in this world where there is violence, some people say, what's yours is mine. I'll take it if I want it. Others say, like the religious, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And so they don't see, even though the scriptures teach that you and I should be especially sensitive to the guest who is in our gates, to the person who is hurting, to the person who is broken. I read this week, again, in our scripture reading, we're reading through the Bible this year in Exodus chapter 22 this week, I read this and it said, you should be nice to foreigners because you were foreigners. You know what it's like. And having grown up in a foreign country where people, we had been at war with Germany 24 years before I, before I moved there. And here's the amazing thing. The people there were enormously kind to me when I was growing up. There were other immigrants who were there who um, beat me up and who burned our family's car. And we have sent missionaries from Tallowood to the country that those immigrants came from because love wins. Love wins. Hatred does not 
win in the end. But if you and I get caught up in what's mine is mine and I'll keep it, we will absolutely miss the point. So sometimes we don't see. We don't see the, the, the young woman who's been sold into human trafficking in our city at the age of 15. We don't see her. And I love what Julie Waters uh, from Free the Captives in our city, this attorney who represents that organization says about that. She says, we don't see the 15-year-old because when she was three, we didn't see her when a refrigerator didn't work and there was no electricity in her apartment. And when she was seven and her uncle started abusing her, we didn't see that either. And when she was 13 and she ran away from home to get away and started using drugs, we didn't see that either. So now that she's 15 and she's got a pimp who sells her to 10 different men a night, we don't see her because we never saw her. But, but two days from now at 10 o'clock in the morning, right up in front of Taste of Texas, we, this church, will pray against human trafficking in our city because that's one thing we can do. We can invoke the great power of God to work. But here's, I'm just going to warn you, if you start praying, then God's going to start doing things in your life so that you get involved against because there is systemic and structural violence and inhumanity in our world. And we have ultimately to come against that. That's why I love the attitude of the Redeemer in the story, the Samaritan, the shocking Samaritan who says, what's mine is yours and I'll give it to you if you need it. Have you ever seen that? When I read about Ferguson, Missouri, when I read about that and I see, I used to live in that area of our country and there were problems back then. There were huge problems back then. And here we are um, 45 years later and there are still huge problems in our country with racism and prejudice. And, and, here's, and here's what I know. I, growing up in different places, we lived in Washington, D.C., outside Andrews Air Force Base. And in our neighborhood, there was racial tension and there was integration going on. And there was just a lot of anger and animosity and a lot of them and us and, and all of that going on. And, and across the street from my house one day, a little girl was bitten by a vicious dog. And a whole group of people circled around and we were just watching this little girl and we got the dog away, but this little girl was just lying there. And our new neighbor of a different ethnicity walked out and picked that little girl up in his arms and held her until the ambulance arrived. And if I live to be 100, I will never forget the blood stains on his white shirt and how watching him love changed our neighborhood and our perception and our perspective. Here's what happens. When one person decides not to hate but to love, that's the beginning of a transformation and a revolution. And we begin to come against the systemic structural issues in our world. Imagine if the Good Samaritan, Tim Keller said, went down the same road the next week and there was another person there. And the next week there was another person. And over three months he ran into 50 people there. Wouldn't he finally say, hey, shouldn't we do something about the people who were beating the people up? Shouldn't we come against the structural violence in our world? Again, Tim Keller tells about a young woman who was being forced by gangs in her neighborhood into uh, human trafficking and she was opposing it and her youth minister said, just stand strong, you're a Christian. He came back a few months later, he hadn't seen her for a while and he ran into her and she hung her head and she said, I've given in. And he said, how could you do that? You're a Christian. She said, I'll tell you how I, how I did it. First, they beat up my dad, then they beat up my brother, then they threatened my mother. And he said, well, you, you, you shouldn't have done, you should have just gone to the police. And she said, pastor, who do you think the they are? Because in that city, 
The police were part of the ones taking the money that was allowing that. See how structural violence and injustice can take place. And it's no use for you and I to talk about, well, we're about preaching the good news and we're not about, listen, the the New Testament and the Bible hold social justice and evangelism hand in hand and so must we. So it's a good thing to help people who are hurting. And it's even a better thing to pray against and work against those people who are hurting other people. And I love the Samaritan's attitude and coming alongside. And I know he blessed the, the, the man who was robbed and beaten. But I found myself this week wondering, what did it do to his soul to help? How did the, the man who had been robbed help the Samaritan just when the Samaritan chose to love and to help. I think that's an interesting question because if Jesus had just said there was a Jewish man who found a Samaritan and um, he helped him, then the religious leader and we today could go, wow, I feel guilty. I just got to be more sensitive to people around. But look, this is not about guilt. This is about grace. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus uh, through uh, the through the apostle Paul writing to the church at Romans expressed it when he said in Romans chapter 15, here's the thing, I want you to take up an offering on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. And here's why I want you to do that because they've already helped you spiritually so you can help them materially. It just makes sense for it to work that way. And sometimes we get to come alongside brothers and sisters materially, but here's what I want you to know that when you and I decide to live by God's grace and give grace to others, the waves of God's grace that come back to us are so much greater than anything we ever give away. I've got a good friend who years ago uh, started getting involved in the country of Sudan and while she was there began to care for the people there and to see the systemic violence and the pain and all of that. And she said to me one time, Talawood, we can't think about, hey, we're gonna help some internationals. We gotta think about, we're gonna live together side by side and minister to each other and we're probably gonna get more out of this than we give. Because when we love, God does things in our hearts that are real. And I can hear it sometimes when I hear our our new brothers and sisters from the Congo pray. I've never heard anything like that in my life. But I can't even understand the words, but the presence of God is is palpable. And there is a spiritual, one of our brothers came to me, a Shell came to me and he said, God has told us that he's gonna do something great at Tallowood and we just want you to know we're praying about that and we're with you. Whatever God wants to do, we're, we wanna be a part of that and see how God is, is doing. My, my friend said to me, I said, well, tell me, I said this week, I said, tell me what you mean by that. What do you mean that you, and she said, well, look, there were, there were these children in a leper colony in Sudan and the only toy they had was a little aluminum truck that they had made out of a, a can of heating oil, an aluminum can of heating oil. And that was their toy. And a couple dozen kids were playing with that in the dirt. And we came in and ministered to them. And when we were leaving, they took their only toy and they gave it to the interpreter's son because they were so grateful that they had new friends, that God had brought new, new friends. And she said, we think we're rich and we're educated in many ways we are. And she said, over there, they have no margin. And so they have to trust God. I think I have a quote here from Elizabeth Hankins, my friend. There really are no margins over there, no medical care, no education, no infrastructure, food insecurity. And this all means these friends have God or no hope at all. But the thing is, they have God. They have God unedited. God who reveals himself in the pages we study was and is the same God these brothers and sisters cast the full measure of their lives into pursuing. They hold nothing back from him in case, 
And in so doing, they find him. It's never this or that, maybe something of God too. It's God and this or that will all be as he allows or directs. And then this, the lack of margins just helps them to see this, whereas our perceived presence of options, we can take care of ourselves and our safety nets, trick us into self-sufficiency and stave off our desperation for God. Can I tell you what I want for you? I want us to get so involved in loving people in this city that we learn from others what it means to be desperate for God. Because I think some of us have forgotten what that's like. And that's a gift that, that others can give to us as we share life and ministry together. God can change us. God will change us. And if you're wondering, so who am I in this story? Because, you know, I mean, are you a robber or are you a religious person or are you a redeemer who's going to help people? No, let me help you today. I'll tell you who we are. We're the one who was robbed, lying in a pool of our own blood with our teeth chipped and our hair matted down with the blood. That's who we are and, and praise God, he sent his son who came along our road, I heard it this morning in a prayer, and found us. And when he found us, he lifted us up and loved us and forgave us and healed us and restored us and reclaimed us and made us into what he knew we could always be, a child of God. And when that truth sinks deeply into our soul, then we will know there is a substance in this world that changes us, but it's not made by any soft drink company. It is the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross. And when you and I receive his gift of grace, he helps us and changes us into the kind of people who love the way he loves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your amazing grace and your love poured into our lives we are trophies of your grace. And God, I pray that we would learn today what it means to be desperate for you, that we would realize for all of our resources, for all the things we have, Lord, our, our stomachs are sometimes full, our, our bank accounts are full, our, our calendars are full, and, and our closets are full, and we can still be so empty. But Lord, every once in a while, you give us the gift of encountering a person whose stomach is not full, whose closet is not full, whose bank account is not full, whose calendar is not full, but their lives are full of you. And when we see that, Lord, we know it's something we, we know we need. And God, give us, I pray, a hunger for you that will not be satisfied because of things we've had our fill and yet we hunger still, not satisfied by this world. But Lord, I pray that you who fill the whole universe in every way would fill us, would fill this church with yourself and then fill this church with people who are full of you so that we become a church that makes disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them and being taught by them until we all become the apprentices of Jesus that you want us to be. That's my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.